This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Today, we are discussing what makes you a designer. And when we're done, some of you might be disappointed while others feel complete validation. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Len Williams. And today we're going to answer the age-old question, the sort of question that someone might ask themselves immediately upon waking up, the question that is on the minds of literally everyone everywhere. What makes you a designer? Da-da-da. So, shall we start by defining designer or is that too broad? I will say this. So I did a little research. Mm -hmm. Merriam-Webster doesn't really help us out here because it defines designer as one who designs. Wow. That is amazingly enlightening. Oh, my gosh. Right? That just – and thanks for listening to episode 10. (laughs) (laughs) All you need to know. Yeah. You're a designer if you design. Designs. And that's a terrible definition. Uh, If you dig a little deeper, and I do mean like air quotes, a little deeper, (laughs) Merriam-Webster goes on to define a designer as one who creates and often executes plans for a project or structure. That is so generic. That is very, uh, not very broad. What's stupid about it is, yeah, Merriam-Webster, I just called it stupid. (laughs) (laughs) What's stupid about it, it just suggests that only people that do plans or buildings are designers. Mm-hmm. What about product designers, graphic designers? I mean, there's... Yeah, even people who st- structure... I mean, I guess technically a structure, like computer science or like writing your own software, that could be a design. Well, you know, we talked a little bit in the past about... And actually, I didn't want to get into it, but we can get into it a little bit. The idea of creativity. And I used to think that mm-hmm. if you were creative when you actually went through the process of like creating something, like, you know, craftsy. Okay. Yeah. Which is not really yeah. what it is. And it wasn't until I really met my wife and I spent time with her and, you know, she got her undergraduate and graduate degrees in math. Mm-hmm. And I started to have a different level of appreciation for what being creative means. I oh, mean, yeah. when, when you think about theoretical mathematicians, I mean, they have to imagine things that a don't exist, can't be put on paper and you can't see. But they're still kind of based on some little things, but you're still kind of Stepping off the edge of the cliff in a way and kind of planting yeah. a new flag. Yeah. So I think Merriam-Webster's definition is garbage. A little limiting. <laughs> it's extremely limited. So so let's just, let's just kind of craft this conversation mm-hmm. a little bit before we get into like the traits. Okay. All right, Lando. You might be shocked to learn this, but being an architect is not as glamorous as people might actually think it is. You know, when you meet people at parties... Yeah, I mean, I know you go to a lot of parties. Ooh, architect. Yeah, you're an architect. That's amazing. And I go, yeah, it is amazing. It but, is, yes. but what they think I do is not really what I do, right? They think that it's very, you know, fountainhead and I design and, you know, I lead the the charge down the road and it's like all I do. I live and breathe it. And, and, and I like to think that that would actually be true, but it's it's not true. So during a typical day, I spend some of my time designing. Like every day, I usually get to design something on some level. Mm. Um, A larger percentage of that time is spent coordinating those designs with other aspects of the project, right? And I I actually like my job, and I think I have it pretty good. But part of the reason I think I have found happiness doing what I do, despite being pounded with emails from people who sometimes think being an architect is a terrible idea, which I don't know why people think that. I don't want those emails. <laughs> Stop sending them, please. Yeah. If you hate being an architect, don't be an architect. But anyway, that's a rabbit hole. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But uh, what I will say is that what I bring to my job is the attitude. And not everything is big picture design. You know, mm-hmm. if, compared to the overall time that I spend working every single day, very little of my time is actually spent designing. But I consider coordinating a project in the details of the construction process of that project integral to a successful design. Yeah. I think you're designing how your thing comes into being. So it's like designing, like you're designing the details of a project. You're thinking about, you know, a creative way to make that project into like creating the details. Yeah. You got there. 
<laughs> well, I look at, okay, here's an easy way to kind of put a little bit something more concrete on it. Yeah. And we could actually use concrete. So it's the idea that somebody might say, like in a space plan, mm-hmm. you know, they'll say, we're going to put this room here and this room here, and we're going to have a connector piece here. And it, when it comes to me, I might sit down and say, all right, when I'm thinking about my stair treads, I want them to be this high so they course out with the masonry that they butt into, mm-hmm. right? I want them to align with the brick on the adjacent wall. You know, so how I detail that, I think, is really what manifests the the sublime into the design, right? On some level, some people are just, they're the 30,000 view. You know, they design yeah. big picture stuff. Yep. And there used to always be that comment, oh, you're just doing toilet partition details until you get more experience and then you get to do like design work. And I tell those people all the time, you know, doing those toilet partition, there's design work there. You know. Yeah, you're dialing down into the details that are really how you perceive a project because you're perceiving it from a person's view. You're not perceiving it up in a plane yeah, 30,000 feet away. It's the actual, not the conceptual. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And I think that if you, and I can say you, Landon, and mm-hmm. your, your small window of practice at this point, you know, there have been design challenges that you've been given, tasks that you've been given. But the vast majority of your time when you spend designing it is not the big picture stuff. It's the execution of the big picture stuff. But it's still things that make the project really, really – it takes it from being a good project to being a great project when everybody from the first idea all the way down to the dimension strings that's on the construction detail – out to the guy that's in the field making sure, saying, nope, this isn't right. This needs to move here. This needs to Mm -hmm. come up. That's what makes a great building. And all those people have design as part of their daily tasks. Yeah, I think I think you can have design at a 30,000 foot level, but you can also, as you're carrying that through the project, there's way to, ways to choreograph in other designs that are spur, not spur offs, but integral with the same big picture idea that you're just carrying down into your own sort of section right. or whatever you're kind of developing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. You're taking the vision and you're distilling it down into every little piece, mm-hmm. right? So it reflects it. And I, so if we look at an office like ours, currently at 11 people, yep. I still, I don't think that that technically falls into the small firm anymore, but we don't really have silos of responsibility where somebody exists for the most part. Everybody yeah. kind of has to do everything. That's where I think people may get burned out when they get siloed into doing things like toilet partitions. They don't see the bigger picture to it or someone, maybe a manager hasn't set the big picture for them or hasn't communicated what exactly the ultimate goal of this project is. They've just been yeah. handed plans on their desk and told to do a task rather than being integrated. That's actually one of the, my friends was complaining about his job. He wasn't able to see the big picture and he had to go actively ask his project managers, you know, why would, why does this change taking place and why are we, you know, why, why is this room here? Why does it have to be this certain dimension and all these kind of things? They just weren't explained to them. They didn't take the time to sit down and walk through what had happened on the project. Yeah. You know, there's a, this is a rabbit hole story that I mm-hmm. won't get into, but I actually quit a job because the answer when I asked those sorts of questions <laughs> was because I said so. Yeah, that is the... Uh, and I was like, I'm out. Mentally at that moment, I said, I'm done here. That's what made you a designer. The answer to that question is I'm out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I took charge of my own path and I'm designing yeah. my life. There you go. But, you know, there's there's some skill to being able to, if I try to play both sides... Of okay. that quote, yep. right? If I'm the if I'm your buddy, there's ways that you can ask that question that don't come off as, as aggressive or like, why'd you do this? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. There's more of the I want to learn from the fountain of your genius. <laughs> Pour some genius into my cup, please. That's right. Explain the thought process behind this so that I oh, can yeah. internalize it and I can further to distill it down in the work that I'm doing on mm-hmm. behalf of the firm and you, my project manager. A little social engineering there. Yeah. Right. Which is a skill set that I have in spades now, but I did not have it when I quit that job mentally mm. and shortly thereafter physically. He burned that bridge. <laughs> as soon as he said, cause I said so, I was so mad. I was like, we're supposed to be getting something out of this, right? Yep. I'm not here just to get a paycheck. I can do anything just to make some money, mm-hmm. right? I'm here to learn and to benefit and contribute and part of your responsibility back to me extends beyond handing me a paycheck at the end of the two weeks. Yep. Right. 
And as soon as it became clear to me when he said, because I said so, I was like, we don't have the right relationship here. We might inspire people to quit their jobs. We got to watch out. Yeah, quit them, people. Mass exodus. (laughs) Bob, do you have an opening? That's what we're going to get. Yeah. Well, you know what? If I had an opening, I I want those kind of people. You want the people that are questioning that. I want people to to be a part of the process and have ownership in the work. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, in all the places I've worked at, when- when it was bifurcated between designers and people that did construction drawings, yeah, those projects almost unilaterally never lived up to their potential because everyone hadn't drunk in the Kool-Aid. Yep. Right? And if you don't see yourself as a designer when you're doing construction drawings, I go, it's, I go, you're not in the right job. I don't understand. And maybe that's, maybe that's the first thing that how you know you're a designer. What makes you a designer? Is that you don't just design buildings, you design details, you design mm-hmm. execution, you design yep. the whole process. So with that, you're integrating the construction process as well as, you know, actually achieving the ends that you're after. So you're able to integrate these multiple sort of uh, levels of information coming in or constraints almost like design constraints. Well, I, I, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. And I think it's. I think that we should acknowledge the fact that we, not architects, but we, Bob and Landon, have it really good because we work for a firm where the culture is design-oriented. Oh, yeah. We're a little spoiled. And we're not low-cost providers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll help you pick a front door. I mean, I don't necessarily have to just take on giant, super luxe design projects, but our mentality is we're going to put the time in. To do things like, let's say I'm going to do a, a reflected ceiling plan, right? Because we design the light fixtures and the lighting mm-hmm. placement, yep. you know, and we design, you know, I use my own favorite kind of narrative process to figure out what lights should be switched and where the switches go. And yeah, where exactly they fall within the room based yeah. on how you're flowing through the house. That's right. So somebody knows if they see a bank of three switches, they just instinctively know mm-hmm. the first one is the main light. I mean, like they know yep. what it is without having to ping pong them and try to punch the right ones. You don't have a light switch behind a door. That's right. You swing open. Rookie move. Cardinal sin. So when I'm laying out a reflected ceiling plan, I want sprinkler heads in the drawing. I want speakers in the drawing. I want registers in the mm-hmm. drawing. All my air diffusers, my grills, all that stuff's going in there. I want it laid out and I'll dimension it. I mean, I'll tell you, this is where it is. Yep. And when I come out to a job site and I want a light fixture in a very particular, like this row of lights is supposed to be right here. And there's like a, a, a beam in the way i don't mean like a structural i just mean like floor joist oh yeah right i'm like guess who's moving that contractor (laughs) i mean i dimensionally located all this stuff for you it was there at first so that you don't put this where my light fixtures are Mm -hmm. right and luckily we work contractors so that doesn't happen too often but i have no hesitation to say move it right yep so that's a but that's a mentality a lot of people, when I circling back around to the idea of like we're very blessed with where we work, is that we can take the time to draw that in, and a lot of people can't. Yeah. So it, it's not. I don't. When I throw that out there, I'm speaking from my opinions based on my experience, and I don't. I don't mean to belittle the people saying, "Well, if you don't spend the time doing that, you're a lesser architect." That's not really what I mean. I'm thinking about it, and I have the luxury to actually ex- act on that idea. But I still would think that everybody's thinking about the idea, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, hopefully so. So, so speaking of circling back around, let's get back to the main topic, right? So, what are some of the characteristics that great designers demonstrate? So, I, I know you kind of came up with a list, and I kind of mm-hmm. came up with a list, and we've kind of we're kind of stitching them together. But I'm gonna yeah. st- I'm gonna start. All right. With with I'm not gonna do all of them. <laughs> we'll go back and forth. Bing bong here. So I think at the very top, observation seems like it should be first on anybody's list. Mm-hmm. If you consider yourself a designer, you make it a point to notice your surroundings. As a characteristic, designers are, in my opinion, curious, and they take notice and make notes of things others might overlook. You know, this could be anything mm-hmm. from, like, I've written posts on my site about how tile is not laid out in a shower correctly when I'm in a hotel, oh, and yeah. it drives me crazy. <laughs> And in my mind, I go, how could somebody not do this correctly? And I bet I might have been, unless there was another architect in my shower, 
I mean, not the same time as me. <laughs> Previously, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think most people would never notice it. Yeah, I couldn't not notice it. It drove me so. I ended up writing a post because I felt like I needed to purge this demon. Make sure it never happens again. Uh, it was the worst. So, I also think that designers still within the category of observation. Mm-hmm. That they build up a mental library of images and experiences that they have, like seeing poorly laid out tile in a bathroom. Yeah. And they internalize it in such a way so they can draw upon that during the course of producing their own work. So, have you ever noticed that people who design day in and day out are constantly talking about the work of others? Yeah. And I think that's that might even be part of the reason architects like to collect books and all this like information on other projects. Or cup design, random kind of pieces of information of design that kind of piece it all together and becomes your, Mm -hmm. like you were saying, your library of almost a precedent kind of thing. But you're taking bits and pieces that you find are important or are formally a nice idea and maybe integrating it into your project. I think think that that is a very valid statement. Yeah, it's almost a level of subconscious information that you're pulling from. Sometimes you don't even think about what you're doing to well, not you don't think about what you're doing but you're sort of channeling that from your past kind of into your design i think right you you're you're not saying i'm going to take this detail that this person did yeah. and i'm going to put it exactly like mm-hmm. that into my own you just kind of you've internalized it and it's become part of your own personal yeah. mental okay. library mm-hmm. well i'll tell you this and i thought this was really interesting so the last place i worked which i liked all those people but I remember having a conversation with one of the two named partners. She was kind of mm-hmm. responsible for what I call the white paper design. Okay. Which is like a blank piece of paper and you're going to put something new on it. So like this is from the from, uh, from scratch, from scratch okay. kind of stuff. Yep. Right. So I would say my role in the office was I, I did all the CA on her projects. Okay. And so she would do kind of the big block kind of design work. And then it would migrate to me and mm-hmm. I would tweak it and I would change the dimensions and the proportions so that things coursed out to masonry dimensions. Or I would say, hey, what if we – we had a great working relationship. I mean, I really, really – I loved her. I thought she mm-hmm. was the greatest. And so – and I was there for a long time. I think I was there for like 12 or 13 years. Okay. So over the course of that time, we had hundreds if not thousands of conversations about design. And it might just be, hey, the latest architectural record – came in and I oh, saw a yeah. project and I'd walk in her office and say, Hey, do you see this? Yeah. This is amazing. Or this is terrible. Yeah. Or, how do you do this and not consider how this line's gonna adjust to it? And mm-hmm. we would talk about this. And this happened for years. Well one day she I don't know if she was in a bad mood or someone had just come in and made a demand or a request of her that kind of moved her off center a little bit. Yeah. But what she told me, which has stuck with me to this day, was that I was the only person in that office, and there were about eight people, I think, that who ever talked about design with her, that we had an office full of people who wanted to be designers, or they had expressed a desire to have more Mm. design responsibility, but yet not one of them ever talked about design with her. Yeah. Right? And to her, that was a red flag. Is this all architects, interior design? All architects. Interesting. That's, I think, the idea we were talking about either the week or week ago or something about design being a way of life. So it's not really just your job or your profession. It's more of a way of considering, you know, how you live and you know, what kind of media yeah. you're absorbing. You're looking at design books rather than, I mean, you could be obviously reading fictional books and everything, but you have this certain level of information you're kind of pulling in right. as you're you know, going, you know, sort yeah. of a side hobby almost, but you look at everything and evaluate everything and you put it in your back pocket for later. Like you go, well, I don't want to do that. So I need to make sure that on my projects, I make sure that my backsplash is at least this tall so that when I put my outlet in it, I can equally mm-hmm. space it and it doesn't look like a mistake. Yeah. Right. So you don't learn just from your own personal experience. You're learning from everybody's experience. Yeah, exactly. Right. I think that's a big part of it. So the next thing on my list, um, and you just, I know you can just splice in yours together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So communicators or communication. Now this might be particular to me because I think of out of all my skill sets, I think communication is one of the ones that I'm best at. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I have a very narrow bandwidth of the type of communication I'm good at. If I don't care what you're saying, I, I tend to you no tend to well you tend to know it. Yeah, you know I'm pretty transparent, which has its pluses and its minuses. You know, if I like you, you know it. If I don't like you, you know it. If I think you're doing a good job, you know it. If I don't think you're doing a good job, you know you it. You know it. Yeah. So that's that has its pluses and minuses. There's mm-hmm. no question. But I think as a communicator, I think an architect, especially if they're a designer, they need to have the ability to articulate their ideas in a way that builds consensus and fosters an atmosphere of confidence. Because mm-hmm. sometimes you might say, hey, I want to jet this part of the building out cantilever 37 feet and we're going to have one single metal pole underneath it, but not connect it. It's going to be fantastic. But why? And the client's like, what? Yeah. And you go, all right, if you just say, just do it because I said so. That doesn't. Who would? Remember, I quit, <laughs> just a, like you're I quit a job over that, remember? <laughs> so tell your clients that. Do, that would work out even better. I don't like the idea word sell, right? Like sell the idea, sell the vision. Yeah. The way that I, as I see myself as a communicator, is that I'm educating the client along the way with what we're doing so that they have ownership in the end product, Mm -hmm. right? And the only way that they'll have that ownership if they feel like they were part of the group that actually helped create it. Yeah, because they're not just handing off the keys to you and letting you do your own thing. It's really they're participating through the design process. So it's it's not really kind of a hand it off. You can do whatever you want. That's right. You You have to be integral to the communication between owner and the design itself. Yeah, you're the you're the conduit between the idea in at least two people's heads, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, so when we start a new project, on occasion, the clients will come in, they'll bring like a giant stack of magazines or books, and they'll all be dog-eared or have post-it notes yeah. and say, I love this. Piece all these together. And they're like, just take all these and make a house. It'll be great. And the truth is, is we have to go through this process of finding out why they like something. Mm-hmm. And- you know, I think part of what makes an architect an architect, and I could even extend this a little bit further and say what makes a designer a designer, yep. is their ability to be able to understand and articulate why they do or they do not like something. Yeah, be very articulate about why exactly this might be the best design. Or, you know, you mentioned the example of the cantilevered corner or whatever it is. I mean, that could be an idea about projecting over a cliff or that maybe there's a really good view to that corner and therefore projecting this corner out allows the client to have the view of nature that they were really looking for in their project. Yeah. You had just using, I mean, that's, that's an explanation, but I mean, it could be a very smart project obviously, but right. So you, so part of that process is Mm -hmm. you not only just explaining why you're doing something and trying to tie it back into something that they've requested. Mm -hmm. But if I make it, if I use an easier example, other than something jetting out over (laughs) the edge of a cliff, yeah, I can say it. A client might bring in a, a picture of a room, and I'll say, "Well, what is it about this that this image that you like?" Mm-hmm. And they'll say, "It just feels right, right." I can't really work with that, so I have to yeah. go through the process of saying, "Well, okay, so let's." And I'm internalizing this part. I'm speaking aloud because this is, you know, an audio kind of medium here. Think along with me. But so we go. All right. So they think it feels right. Well, that's okay. It's okay for them because they're not trained. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have to go through it and go, is it the ceiling height? Is it the proportions of the room? Is it the way the light's coming in? Is it the color tone? Is it the palette of materials? So we try to go through it because we're not trying to recreate the image that they brought in. Yep. We're yep. trying to distill the feelings that they're experiencing with this image. And how can we put that into the project? Yeah, I think that that weaves in with my point about being uh, designers are empathetic. And so they really... You know, they can put themselves in someone else's shoes. So when you get to know your client, you know, you can almost embody yourself into how they live their life and therefore design around it. And so it's part of it's understanding other people. And it's not only residential architects, but you can embody your, say you're designing a library. You're thinking about all the user groups, you know, what is, what's a kid's perception of the library and their experience their first time coming to a library. That's, that's maybe a narrative that you put together when you're thinking about how you're designing. Yeah. You know, here's an interesting sidebar narrative. I had a friend of mine. She just posted this thing on Facebook and she went into the, this will probably get cut out. (laughs) All right. (laughs) It was terrible. But she went into the library and there was somebody looking at porn in the library. Oh God. Like, there it is, man. And so she went to complain and the rule was 
you can do whatever you want in the library as long as you don't like act or behave or do like have inappropriate behavior. So just because you don't find the content on the screen appealing (laughs) doesn't mean that that person can't do that. Yeah. And I was like, what? Yeah, freedom of information. I know, but there could be kids running around. It's kind of hard. It's like, know the the room a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that just, that stunned me with the idea that, okay, so I go, as a designer, do you internalize that and create a narrative so you go, okay, so there's going to people that are going to do that. So can we design into the library a way for that activity to happen and not expose and corrupt our beautiful children Yes, with this kind of, you know, activity, right? Not judging, but being prepared for the eventuality of such occurrence yes. taking place, There you go. right? So that goes back into the communication, mm-hmm. not judging that guy. Do what you want, man. Just, just gonna don't you know? I mean, I really, I was, I was like, or a woman, inappropriate. <laughs> That's right. It could be a woman. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> we just pictured it as an old white that man. That sounds tending. so preposterous <laughs> that it would be a woman. Um, but yeah, but that goes so that fits back into the if you're empathetic and you're trying to figure out and make a connection with your owner, with mm-hmm. your client, and find out what it is they're asking you for. Even though they don't have the ability necessarily to tell you what exactly it is that they're looking for. Yeah. You right? distill what they're giving you and try to internalize yeah. and move forward. Okay. So that kind of dovetails nicely into the next one, which is integration. Mm-hmm. Right. And by right. this, I just mean that good designers are able to take their ideas and putting them in, put them into play. Right? Okay. So, yep. I, I, you know, I, I was sitting there going, oh, should I kind of mentally craft a paragraph to explain it? And I go, it's so straightforward. It's the, it's basically saying, I have an idea. How do I get that idea out of my head and onto a piece of paper and have it built, right? Mm-hmm. I have to be able to translate it as a concept all the way to fruition. Yeah. So the designer is not only the person sketching in ultra bold Sharpie all over the, you know, page and concepts, but they're actually the person thinking about integrating and creating the thing so it's more of a almost like a craftsman you have to integrate sort of a artist and craftsman kind of thing i think when you're thinking about the idea of designer it's like it's like you're saying they're a maker exactly yeah. right now i will say that this might jade me a little bit because i've just i've probably just have isol- isolated like three groups of people to a certain extent okay because this reflects my vision of what a good designer is. Mm-hmm. And that is the person who designs whatever it is they're designing. They have an they have a innate ability to understand how that thing comes to be created. Yep. It suggests that you have some knowledge about construction. In my case, um, I'm not talking specifically about product design, but I, I, I don't I think they're similar. Right. Mm-hmm. But if I go, this is the idea. I want this to cantilever out. Right. And I have to think, well, how do I get air out there and what's holding it up and how thick is my floor slab and how does my glass come down and meet the floor so I can kind of create this box? I mean, if Mm -hmm. I don't understand how something gets built, taking it from an idea and actually getting it out into the world, I think there's a step missing. Yep. Oh, yeah. And I think that the best designers are either the people who have access to the people that think about those things. Which goes all the way back to the very beginning of our conversation, which mm-hmm. suggests that everybody along the way, what makes a really good project is not just the person that has the idea to cantilever these glass boxes, but the person yep. actually knows how to detail them so that the idea is executed. Right. Yeah. But at some level, somebody has to have the confidence to believe that what they want to do can be done. Yeah. Right. So, so I think the, the idea is the designer is holistic, and so you're thinking about top-down, the whole process, how to create things. Yeah. what it comes down to. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Yes. All right. Here's another one. Hit me. Evaluate. Okay. A good designer, I'd say a great designer, has the ability to look at their own work critically and keep the good bits and get rid of the bits that don't work. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, okay. You have to be able to say... My great idea was not a great idea. Or my great idea would have been an even better idea had I not done this. Yeah. Right? Part of it is that I think as you're building up this mental bank of images in your head, 
part of that is experiential. You know, there's like the 4D aspect to design, which is the time. Oh, like, yeah. Okay. Like I have something and it worked great. But in five years, the corner's pulling apart. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it didn't work the way I thought it was going to work. It didn't get used the way I thought it was going to be used. And you put that back and you you Learn. adjust yeah. your expectation for the idea. Yep. Right. Which ironically, that's not the right way to put it. I'll say that whenever I give a design task to, to young designers, like right out of school, the first thing they do is they kind of cram every good idea they ever had in school into that first project. Mosaic of ideas, I call it. That's a, that's a, I love that. <laughs> that should, you should make a t-shirt, mosaic of Just ideas. Just clump a bunch of buildings. It's <laughs> like the pottery barn of design ideas, uh, right? Yes. So, uh, so what I mean when I say that everyone tries to get every good idea into their very first project is that they haven't had the ability to say, no, that's not right here, or it needs to change, right? They think mm-hmm. a good idea is a good idea is a good idea, and it's not always a good idea. You have to be able to evaluate your own work or other people's work and say, take the good, get rid of the bad, and move on. Yeah. One of the things, the same woman that I worked with in my last job that mm-hmm. she was really good at is when they really started letting me spread my design wings and giving me big projects to design, I went through this period of I would design like a house, for example, mm-hmm. and 95% of it was amazing. As expected. As expected. <laughs> but 5% of it just sucked. It just wasn't right. Yeah. You know, it didn't fit. And I would spend more time than I really had mm-hmm. to try to get that 5% to fall in line. Right? Yeah, with everything else that was going on. And it on. just, it's like I'd get something right and something else would pop out. It just, I just couldn't get it. And she said, you know, every now and then, you just got to throw the good part away. Like, you can't just... Mm. You know, it's the idea that 95% is great, 5% is terrible. Well, when you try to fix that 5%, it blows up part of that 95%. So now you've got yeah. 90% is great and 10% is terrible. Mm-hmm. And you can't keep trying to work the same design solutions over and over and over and over and over again yep. just to get that 5%. Sometimes you would got to back it up to 50% to yeah. get the 5%. I think that's the thing I've been – I mean, it's something maybe I learned in school more is like, Actually stepping back and, you know, you, you spend all this time designing a certain thing and it's not, like you were saying, meshing together. You have to be able to pull yourself back from like 100 feet away and perceive that you, what you've done is, you know, not working. So turn right. change it, try another avenue and that's hard. go along. It's really hard to remove yourself from what you had already, you know, this path you've already traveled down. Yeah, because you put back and try. you put so much work into it. You just yeah. really want it to work, and it's really hard to just wad it up and say exactly. that it's not right. Yeah, but I think that's an important skill set to learn on your path to being a great designer. Mm-hmm. And then you eventually will learn when you're going down that path and need to step back before you go too far down. Stop digging the hole. Yeah, you don't want to get to the end and go. This is the wrong address. Yeah, <laughs> you know I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Okay. The next one on my list: context. Designers, um, I think great designers are great at understanding context. So context is what enables us to make sense of things and put more sense of order to the task at hand. Context is that bit that allows you, the designer, to decide if something is relevant. And determining if something is relevant is crucial to designing because if you design a solution to a problem that isn't relevant in the given context, worthless Hmm. right has no value to the process so a designer needs to design solutions that are appropriate given the context of the scenario great designers understand that context and their solutions reflect that understanding that's i think that's kind of heavy you know i was trying to figure out you know as i'm piecing this together in my mind i mean i know where i'm going with it Mm -hmm. it's the idea that you're solving problems you're you're designing solutions for problems that you have not creating solutions for problems that you don't have. That's a much easier way to put it. <laughs> and if you're a good designer, you're working with what needs to be addressed, not mm-hmm. not this kind of whatever. Just yeah, do- but there also is some, I think there's you can make room for things that aren't really on, you know, aren't a practical sense. Like you think about some of the old temples in Japan, they have these stargazing decks, like decks, essentially, where they just kind of, an open platform where they just went out and 
stared at the the stars. There's also, you know, they had these gardens they built, which are really just you kind of sit and reflect on these gardens. I don't know if those are. But that, don't you think that was probably a program like they went in and saying, we need a space to contemplate stars. So we're going to create a deck. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's part of the programming. Now, I do agree with you that you could dial this back a little bit and say you can design opportunities or moments or yeah. uh, problems that are not part of the program. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I don't need to have this but it's so good we're putting it in. Yeah. But normally that's a result of an equation that's the result of the program, right? Like I have an opportunity here. Like here's a great example. We did a house uh, a couple years ago and it had a second floor and the second floor overlooked part of the first floor that kind of bumped out a little bit. Mm -hmm. And they're actually in construction. It's framed. It's like sheetrocks going in and I'm standing up there and I'm actually – same woman, same office. Okay. We're standing up there and we kind of looked at each other and looked literally at the same moment we went, this should have been a deck. Like we should have made it so that you could have walked out this wall and onto this deck. Yeah. And we looked at it like, duh, it's so obvious, right? Because it's amazing. It was up in the trees. It was beautiful. And we looked at each other like, like at the same time, how did you miss this? <laughs> it was you, wasn't it? You missed it. She's like, you missed this. So we went to the clients. We're like, okay, we feel a little silly that this is something we're bringing to the table now. Mm-hmm. But stand right here, look out this window. And be amazed. And listen to what we're about to tell you. Yeah. And we walked them through the process. When it was all said and done, deck, put it out there. Boom. And the owner's like, yeah, we're doing it. Hmm. And it was awesome. You know, it was one of my favorite spaces in the whole house. And it was it was on the front of the house that like you would never think that this is where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. But because of the way the house was sited and because of the number of trees, I went, I bet it's amazing up there. And I used to talk to the clients all the time about how I was gonna come over there and drink margaritas up there all the time. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Did you ever get the chance to do that? No, we did go out and drink margaritas, but we went to a restaurant. Christened it. Oh the restaurant. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't drink any margaritas oh, okay. on their on their roof deck. Hmm. One of these days. One of these days. They'll so, remember that story. And they'll- do you know that Paul in our office, shout out to Paul. Go, Paul. His daughter lives on the street where that house oh, with the deck is on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he knows that house. Nice. His daughter knows that house. Okay. And I think the daughter knows the people. Great people, by the way. There you go. So last one on my list, mm-hmm. and I saved this one for last, was forge your own path. And then I put in parentheses, they do what they want. (laughs) Do what I want. (laughs) I do what I want. (laughs) Uh, Rather than forming a belief, uh, let me see if I can articulate this from my brain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I do what I want. (laughs) Um, Rather than forming a belief about what a solution can or can't be, great designers tend to look at the process and ask themselves, what if or why not? Mm -hmm. And designers often see rules as guidelines and not absolutes, and will work along the edges, or they'll kind of exist along the fringe. Yeah. And a result, and as a result, I should say, generally feel unbounded by rules that others tend to see as absolutes. Yeah, I think designers are almost inherently rebel, not rebels, but, you know, you don't want to trod down the old path that everyone else has done, so you kind of, you're veering off left and right, doing your own thing, and, you know, you have this inherent questioning of the world and those that think they know what the answer to everything is. I think any designer is totally anti, you know, this is the way things are and the way they always will be. So they're always questioning. Yeah. I think that's. Well, there's a, there's another podcast that I've already penciled in that we're going to talk about that mm-hmm. fits this perfectly. This Ooh. would be a perfect dovetail for that, but it has to do with the architect's ego. And I could say for this oh, yeah. episode, the designer's ego, mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of, I know better. Right. That they have to kind of exist to say, yeah, instead of the, well, this is how it's always been done. They need to go, well, we can do something better. Yeah. Well, I think, it, I think right? it goes back to sort of, you're going off the cliff in a way you're, you're marking your own territory. You're sort of sticking a flag in the dirt or uncharted territory. And so you, you have to have some, you know, footing to do that, but Wait you're able to step off. You're going off the cliff and putting a flag in dirt. I'm trying I'm, to think of a better I'm, metaphor here. I'm so your <laughs> metaphors, people don't know there's dirt there yet. Your metaphors <laughs> are all over the place. <laughs> Planting your flag. Like on the moon. Like just like the moon, yes. That's right. 
I wonder if our flag's still there. No, it's not there because the it's fake. Life of an Arctic We never flag. went to the moon. <laughs> oh, God. We're no. also on a flat Earth. No, flat I didn't Earth say society. that. I think we've solved that. We know that that's not oh, true. Oh, no. Yes. But I think the whole, we, I don't think we ever landed on the moon. Okay. Why, why would we, why would we fake that? Really? You're it would have taken a lot more no, no, no. effort to fake I, it. We need to, when we're done, I'm going to bring it. my wife in. She's got like the, she has like an elevator pitch. She doesn't believe the moon landing was real? Oh no. I used to totally go, we totally landed on the moon. And then she, she like pitch. Ele- ele- elevator pitched me on this. We weren't, didn't go to the moon. I was like. I wonder if she did this as a joke. You might be right. No, no, <laughs> no. Actually tonight, tonight, my daughter. At the school she goes to, she's part oh, of the con- she's part of a conspiracy theorist club. Oh lord, that's hilarious! <laughs> that's awesome, actually. Yeah, ninth grade. She's Why didn't I have one of those? I know. School. I'm gonna make my own. You and me later. Wait, We're- okay, okay. So they had a discussion about this in their conspiracy club. You know, they talk about all. Oh, actually, truth is, I didn't know until tonight she was in this conspiracy theory there you club. Go. She didn't. But she came in and she goes, "I'm more willing to believe." That Keanu Reeves is an immortal more than I am <laughs> that we were not on the moon. Hmm. And my, my wife's just like, it's on. Oh, I'll show you. Yeah. Cracks her knuckles. She's going to have the elevator pitch. And next thing you know, we're going to be a family of we were never on the moon. Oh my God. I know. I feel like, why'd you ruin it for me? <laughs> okay. You know what time it is? In my spare time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Someone had to sing it. In my spare time segment. Okay, actually, we aren't going to do the IMST segment this week because IMST. <laughs> I gave I an acronym. I gave it an acronym. Yes, because I don't have any spare time at the moment, and I'm tired of recording these and saying I don't have anything to talk about. <laughs> so, uh, and, and anything else I'm doing is so mm-hmm. remotely on it. I mean, it's not even remotely been feeding my cat. Oh, Purina. Yeah, nobody wants to know. No one cares. Exactly. I don't want to know. That's that was gonna be my spare time. No, yeah. glad we cut this. I'm gonna propose that we give ourselves an alternative segment option. All right, and we'll see how this goes. Okay, we'll run this one up the flagpole. See what we get. I'm gonna call this segment hypotheticals. 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 All so right. I'm gonna propose a hypothetical situation, and then we're gonna talk about it. Now, I don't want to talk about it for an hour. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'll go down every loophole. You we don't want to go through every loophole. Okay. All right. I also think that we could entertain hypotheticals from listeners if they want to play along as well. Ooh. So, like, if they wanted to leave, like, you could tweet it to me or you could Instagram yeah. it to me. I mean, people send me messages through any myriad of, of, <laughs> of arenas. Or you can come to the website and leave a comment and say, here's, yeah. a, I want to propose this hypothetical. That would be pretty right? good. And then maybe we'll work that into the show. How cool would that be? And they'll give a shout out and be like, Dylan from Connecticut. Yeah. All right. Dylan from Connecticut. You're up. Give it to me. I think that could be kind of fun. (laughs) So I could ask a question for the first hypothetical. Okay. Would you work for a famous architect for free if you were a student looking for summer work? But I'm not going to ask that question today. (laughs) That's okay. That's a little. The hypothetical question I'm going to ask today is this. You ready? Mm, I don't know if I'm ready. You are. Oh, God. You are trapped in the Dallas Zoo, oh, and all the wild animals are out of their habitats. Okay. You can't leave. You have no weapons, and you have to find your own food. My fist are weapons. How long do you think you could survive? <laughs> you have to find your own food. Yeah, you can't leave. It's just you. I'm not and- allowed to leave, or I no, physically can't leave? you can't leave. What if I enter the fifth realm through, like- No, that's not- Doing, like- No. You know, sitting- Things. That's preposterous in this okay, hypothetical. Preposterous. All right, let's bring it back to reality. Yeah. All right. So I'm. I've never been to the Tales Zoo yet. It's so huge. I'm imagining all the animals that are there. Yeah. I would pit the animals against one another somehow. And how would you do? I that? I would find the smallest animal, probably a duck. I don't know. Get the lion to be my friend somehow. That's ridiculous. And then I would uh, ride the lion. So your answer is you would die immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. What I would actually do. Is probably hide somewhere really good. I was really good at hide and seek when I was a kid. Yeah, but you got to eat. Eventually, you got to come out and get some food. Well, that would probably just start eating the animals. Yeah, I'd probably go for the duck first. How are you going to catch a duck? That you couldn't Ducks just aren't that fast. Oh, you're going to just grab one. <laughs> I've done it once. Once. No, yeah. actually, I've never grabbed a duck. No. And then you're going to build a fire, and then all of a sudden, what am I going to build a fire with? 
I mean, I there's stuff the at the zoo. Are there like uh, are there electrical outlets? I'd go like to yeah. I'd go up? to like the hot dog stand first. Oh, okay. Before so I like, go to a I'm not duck a, in an enclosure. Yeah, you're in the okay. zoo, the whole zoo. So like, there's a the, fence around. I'm in the zoo. Yeah. So there's like hippos. So there's a lot of food like in the hot dog stand. That's right. I just gotta lock all the other other animals out, especially the ones with thumbs. You gotta watch out for those. Yeah, but you're eventually run out of food. You're gonna have to leave. You're gonna have to get out of your little safe box and go like to the next one. Yes. Right. And so in that secure it, all food in zones, that moment, I'm exposed. Something's gonna get you. Yeah, my theory is that I think all the, so the animals will maybe attack one another. I don't know. They've been in boxes so long. Yeah, they don't know what to do. What animal do you think would get you when it finally came down to that? Which would be the animal that would get you? What's your worst night? Like, oh my god, this would if this got me, that would be the worst. It's easy for me to answer. I don't know. I was going to say snake, but I'm imagining like something flying in from above. I'd be so mad if a snake is the thing that took me out. You could just strolling along and then it just comes out of the- a giant zoo full of like super alpha predators. <laughs> you get taken out by those a are, snake. I could see those so easily. You just uh, walk around them. You know what my nightmare would be? What was that? I mean, I literally go, I could survive forever. Cause, How? Because I'm half- Forever in, is a long Because I'm Indian and Norwegian. Would you like- I can walk across water. <laughs> I'm imagining you like fencing off an area and like uh, domesticating some of the animals, and then you have a livestock essentially feed off. No, of. but then that you know that would attract other alpha predators. They're like, there's mm-hmm. this food's already penned up for me. Food, right? No, my nightmare would be. I mean, I'm uh, 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 sneaking yeah. around, whatever. Kind not black on the fig. I mean, I would be. Up. I'd be doing amazing, and then what would happen is like a baboon would rock around the corner. <laughs> That's what would get me. Have you seen those? They're horrifying. Yeah, they're uh they're not so big as to like look at it and go. Like you think, maybe. <laughs> I could take that. Maybe if I landed my punch just right. Mm-hmm. But then they they got those teeth, their teeth are like oh yeah, giant. Oh man. And they like they'd open I literally that's what I that's what I worry. That would get me. A baboon. Now I'm thinking about gorillas. Do they have silverback gorillas? They have, yeah. Oh god. Yeah. See but you. see I what I think is these animals have been in cages for so long that they're not just, their instincts aren't, I'm going to go rip your arms off. Yeah, I think they've been docile for so long. Yeah, but then that's, after a while, they're like, I'm hungry. Right? I think they're going to go back mm. to the, what am I going to do? Oh, yeah. Like, you know, I don't want to run across a chimpanzee either. There's a lot of terrible stories about oh, monkeys God. ripping and people apart. Up. Yeah. This is scary. I don't think I'm ever going to go to the zoo now. No, the Dow Zoo. Shout out to the Dow Zoo. It's awesome. <laughs> Part of me goes, maybe you should go to like where the giraffes are, which is like this huge like area, right? Okay. And go hide in a rock. And like- You gotta eat though. I know. Well, you know, they gotta- See, thing is, is you think, oh, it's nighttime. They gotta- No, that's when the worst things are out looking for food. <laughs> it's at night. Yeah. And you can't see as well as they can. I'd say- I would give I'd give you, even though you- <laughs> oh, would, how long would I last? Yeah. How long would you last? I'm thinking you wouldn't last very long. <laughs> wow. I don't think you would. I think a month and a half. I don't think, oh God, I don't think you'd last two weeks. Why not? I just don't think you have that killer instinct. I don't have to eat for two weeks. I don't I think. I can hide for two weeks. I don't think. I just I, find they'd, water. They'd smell you. You could live three weeks without food. Three hours without shelter and heavy weather. Three days without water. Three <laughs> three weeks without food, I think is the saying. Yeah. I think I could actually, I would go to the zoo. And let's say that they rescued, uh, like, so you got rescued after, like, two months. I'd be fatter. I'd weigh more. I'd be eating so <laughs> well. They would so think you well. were a gorilla. They were <laughs> like, like, oh, God. They're like, you look amazing. <laughs> um, I'd be more muscly. I would have gained weight because I'm eating so great. You're I'd have, like, a headdress. Weight. Yeah, muscles. <laughs> I'd have, like, a headdress made out of the carcass of other animals that I right. defeated along the way. Nice. A tassel have, of teeth around your They'd all be baboon necklace. teeth, because that's what- I'd take them all out one by a one. prize. I actually think I'd last pretty well, because I have no fear just, where it comes to- just absolutely, So that's the thing, that's, you gotta have, you have to have fear in order to- No, I think that's avoid exactly danger. wrong. No, I think that's wrong. So you're going to go out on a date. You're going to go, and you're, I'm taking out the gorilla <laughs> first thing, and then they're going to take you out. That's the prison theory, right? You pick, the, you pick exactly. a fight with the biggest guy. And then everyone's See, but in you. your mind, you're like, he would kill you. In my mind, I'm like- He's gone. I got that. I'll take him out. Because you know why? Mm-hmm. Never been in a fight in my life. Never. There you go. And you're like, that's why you wouldn't win. Yeah. Wrong. You know why I would win? 
someone's getting 50 years of ass whip poured on them. Uh, if it's reserve, a gorilla. You have the reserves. <laughs> I got 50 years of never beating anybody up. Uh, if, I get, I if, if I get in a situation, like, do you want to be the first guy that I get in a fight with? <laughs> it's going to go badly. I mean, I can have like an arm ripped off and I'm not stopping. Wow. I'm still coming. God. Right? I'm scared now. Think how far I have to be pushed to have that first fight. Yeah, but it's always, you know, it's the one, it's the line with the most scars you have to be scared of. Yeah, because he's been in so many battles. He's tired. He's just a tired old lion. My daughter told me that if, like, the zombie apocalypse ever happened, mm-hmm. she goes, I wouldn't last, like, a day. As soon as I learned, she's like, what? There's zombies? I'd lay down on the ground. Just, just be done. Take me. Just wait for it. I want to be part of the zombies. And she goes, you, on the other hand, you'd be, like, on, you'd be the last person standing. Because that's, I'm, I'm dangerous. That's, <laughs> that's scary. Yeah. Okay. And not because I kind of already look like a zombie, so I had fool You'd them. You'd feel it, yeah. Yeah. So that's a perfect example of a hypothetical. There you go. That was a pretty good one. Yeah. So if you have, uh, for future suggestions, mm-hmm. just email me or send it through the website. Or tell us how you would survive this hypothetical. <laughs> if you want to tell us how you would survive being trapped in the, in the local zoo oh, God. with no weapons, I would love to hear it. Yeah. Okay, so that's a wrap. Thank you for being with us for episode 10, What Makes You a Designer. This might have been our best episode ever. And for that reason, I really want you to take 30 seconds and head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star Holy Roller rating if you haven't already. It actually makes a difference and allows us to keep this podcast trucking along. Mm-hmm. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for notes, links, info, photos from the episode and that's where you leave your hypotheticals for future episodes yes 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 so thanks so much for tuning in cheers see ya Which, you know, can I tell you, I've never done that in my life. Picked up with dogs. Yes. Yeah. We don't need to say it. Yes. When the dog does that business, I've never picked it up. Use a shovel? What do you? No, truth is, is I've never had a dog that, that did their business outside of my yard. Oh, yeah. And then I just mow it. Yeah. <laughs> That's not it true. flings it around. No, I, I actually rake it up. But when I see people walking their dog and, and then their dog does it. And they put their hand in the plastic no. bag and they reach down. Oh, it's oh, warm. I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way. Literally. Uh, I don't want to think about it right now. That was funny. That's funny to you. <laughs> I'm going to say that again because you chortled. All right. <laughs> Even if it was like bunny rabbit size chimpanzee. Oh. Ten of those would take you out. Yeah, those are scary. <laughs> Ten. They would little, go for the mouth, and then you would just little be done. teeny tiny, adorable chimpanzees would destroy, destroy. you <laughs> instantly. Yeah. Five by five. <laughs> I'm amazed. We looked it up. Yeah, it's a thing. I know. It's yeah, a thing. It's. I yep. had never heard of it. I mean, maybe it just. It's one of those things I said in like military movies, and I was just like, yeah, whatever. The only time I've lingo thing. The only time I've ever heard it said before was in Aliens. Five, five, five. They're landing on the planet, you know, where they all eventually die, except for Ridley hey, or whatever. Spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Go no further. Everybody dies. <laughs> <laughs>